0: You know, cheating in sports is probably about as old as sport itself. When we look back at the history of of the Olympic Games, for instance, starting 776 B.C. in the city of Olympus, the sanctuary city of of the Greek god Zeus, were these games that happened every every four years. You can still visit Olympus today and see the, the remnants, the remains of just a number of statues, most of them, to that, that false god, Zeus. One of them in particular stood near the beginning point of the arch where athletes would enter to begin these games. And the statue was called Zeus the Oath Giver. And everyone competing in those Olympic Games would pause at the foot of the statue as if they were talking to a real god and they would swear an oath that they would follow the regulations of the Olympics and that they would play fair. In essence, they were vowing that they would not cheat there. But what's interesting and ironic about the onset or the development of the Olympic Games, what's really more than ironic, just fantastically hypocritical, is how those games began. In addition to the statues of of Zeus that were there around Olympus, there's a much less known series of statues that depicts a king and a set of horses and chariots and an individual that would compete against that king. King Onimaeus had received in a so-called prophetic vision that whoever would take his throne one day would also take his life. And so he was bent on defending it at all costs. And so he set up a series of competitions that only the person who could defeat him in a chariot race could take his throne, could have the hand of his daughter, could become the king and take the throne. But Onimaeus knew that he had the fastest horses in all the kingdom and no one could ever beat him until a young man named Pelops came along. And Pelops had something um, in his favor. Not only did he have a fast set of horses, but he had bribed the caregiver of the king's horses. And so he persuaded him to trade out the linchpin of his chariot. Instead of a wood pin, he put in a hardened wax pin. And so when the day of the great race came, the competition began, and when things really heated up, that wax pin gave way His chariot disconnected from his horses. He flipped, lost his life, and Pelops became the king. The irony of this is that whole region now is still named after Pelops, the Peloponnesian region. And Pelops, again, not without any sense of irony and certainly with no loss of hypocrisy, is the one that established the Olympic Games. And he established these games with a number of pledges that you would not cheat, that you would keep the rules. Again, no irony lost on us. On the road now to Olympia, as you walk in, if you were to visit that site today, as you pass through the arches that every athlete passed, you see another set of statues. They call these the Zanes. The Zanes were sort of a, a hall of dishonor, if you will, the, the hall of shame. These were the statues of all of the contestants in the games that were found to have cheated. Isn't it kind of interesting that, one, human nature shows that people have been cheating since really the dawn of time, but also, something about us causes us to remember more those who cheat and those who fail than those who do it right and those who succeed. But so today, this series of statutes still remains. You can still see the bases and the inscriptions at the bottom of them of what exactly they did to cheat. Some paid off judges. Some paid off their competitors. Uh, some uh, represented areas that they weren't from. So many different kinds of cheating, but this constant reminder of the cost of not finishing well, the shame of not finishing well. And so when we get to 2 Timothy, and Paul's talking to this young protege in the city of Ephesus, filled with so many of these same Greek gods, and he says to him these words, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You can just imagine this sort of social, cultural backdrop and all of that. Cheaters don't win. Cheaters who are found out are disqualified from any competition or any prize, and all they have is shame, enduring shame. And our challenge today is the same. To be a winning athlete means that we have to compete in such a way so that we, too, are not disqualified. And speaking of cheating, I want to throw this in for my pictures while I was in Greece. Uh, this is a picture of a cheater, by the way. Um, it's kind of subtle. Um, the starting mark had not been given yet. And if you can tell, she's already beginning to move. And so before the start was given, she was way ahead, but she still lost. And so I was able to use that as a teaching discipling moment for my wife and say, an athlete is not crowned unless he or she competes according to the rules. Let's pray. Father, may it be so for us, that we would take these words to heart, And we would consider this this metaphor of life, this race, not a sprint, but a long distance, lifelong challenge, to run well and to finish, knowing that when we finish, it's you that we meet, knowing that you are the judge, you're the arbiter of right and wrong, you're the one that hands out the reward. And Lord, we may not know it now, we may not feel the weight of it now, but there's going to come a day, there's going to come a moment that there's nothing more that we could possibly desire than to hear you say, well done. When everything else will just fade away, every accomplishment, every treasure, every earthly reward will be nothing And we will want the reward of our King. Father, I pray that we would run in such a way as to receive that reward, that well done. Teach us, challenge us, encourage us, convict us, renew us, restore us, refocus us. Father, whatever it takes today, that we might continue to run well, we might begin to run well, we might begin again to run well. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Context of this brief phrase, of course, comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1, I mean, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if you have your Bible, open up to that so you can see where this fits and how this fits together with the verses around it. Remember that Paul told Timothy, he said, You then, my child, that was his relationship with Timothy. He wasn't just mentoring him, he wasn't just training him. He was so invested in him, he was a spiritual child to him. Presumably, Timothy came to the faith under the ministry of Paul. Paul was deeply vested in Timothy's life. But Paul was also following the model, the paradigm of Scripture, that you pour yourself into others who will also pour themselves into others. And the gospel and disciple-making will be perpetuated, generation to generation to generation, all the way up till now. He said, "'You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also.'" And so I gave you the subtitle there of every Christian's call to both discipleship and to disciple making. So I want you to think about that statement for a moment. This is not just about our responsibility to help make disciples, but to be one first. Timothy, you be this. You be strengthened in the grace of Christ as you pursue Christ. But you don't pursue Him for your own sake. You pursue Him for the sake of others around you as well. Your family first. Your wife, your children, your husband, your family first. First. Those closest to you, those that God will put into your life, and as part of your personal pursuit, listen to what he says. Verse 3, he says, "...share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him." Then a second metaphor, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And Then finally, a third metaphor, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops." In these metaphors, simply put, he's talking about, first of all, the focused devotion of a good soldier. The focused devotion of a good soldier who finds God's grace in the midst of adversity. While there's difficulty and struggle, God is shaping that person. God is making them through adversity, through hardship. And then the faithful dedication of a winning athlete. How is God's grace shaping and making this person? They're strengthened through discipline, through the consistency of a pursuit of a goal that requires them to think differently and live differently than those around them who have no goal, no aim, who are not running towards any mark, towards any finish line. And Next week, we'll talk about the persevering diligence of a hardworking farmer who's strengthened, who receives God's grace through hard work and effort. And in the consistency of hard work and effort, they begin to learn who God is and what God does and how God provides for them. And God's grace is made available to them through work. Alistair Begg said, without commitment, the commitment of a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, without commitment there will be no victory in battle. There will be no medal at the races end and there will be no harvest in the field. So all of these metaphors are meant to shape our understanding of the Christian life. It can't be passively achieved. You can't finish well and do it passively. You have to be different than others. You have to have a different sort of devotion, a different kind of diligence, a different commitment to hard work. So let's focus in just for a moment today on this metaphor of the winning athlete. Last week, if you weren't here, we talked about the idea of a good soldier. You can revisit that. Find that on our webpage. But today I want to talk about an athlete and at least these three implications. I don't want to add more to the text than is there, and certainly we could run this well for a while. But three implications at least. The first one is the implication of preparation. A- an athlete doesn't simply show up on the day of competition and hope to succeed, an athlete has to be committed to preparation. Not just participation in the activity, but preparation that readies them for it. And Paul had already told Timothy this. He'd used this sort of language already in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He told Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for it. Don't just try to be godly. You don't just wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to stop being that. I'm going to stop doing that. No, you train yourself for that. You train yourself for godliness through commitment to His Word through discipline of self-denial, through, through prayer, through avoiding places and people and situations where temptation might prevail, through accountability and structure in your life, where other people are there helping you train yourself for godliness. He went on to say in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 4, he said, while bodily training is of some value, godliness has value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive. What end is he talking about? He's talking about the end of godliness. I want you to think about this just for a moment. Would you describe your pursuit of Christ, your pursuit of being Christ-like, living the Christian life, would you describe that as being marked by toil? Would you describe that as something you strive for? Are you passive about it, at best hoping it's just going to happen to you, that maybe it'll catch because you sit in a worship service or you participate in a small group? Or would you consider this the great effort of your life? I want to know God, and I want to be like His Son. I'm striving. I'm toiling. I'm working for this. I'm conscious of the effort it takes to do this. He says, because we do this. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. As I was writing my notes out, I thought of this statement really more in personal application, but certainly common application to us all. Posers try, but athletes train. And there is a huge difference. Posers try. They'll they'll put on a show, but, but athletes train. Now, I'm not a soldier. To some minor degree, I have been an athlete, and I thought about bringing all my little trophies from back in the day that I could show you that I actually had some athletic accomplishments, not great ones, mind you, but um, for two or three years, I was voted most athletic in my fraternity, uh, which is also kind of like being voted um, skinniest kid at fat camp, but that goes without saying. But I was, and, you know, playing these sports, I love to play sports, I love I loved to compete, but I can remember this one image that's so burned into my mind, memory of this very truth, of posers trying but athletes training. I went to summer camp at a place in Virginia called Camp Varsity. It was run by a coach for 30-some years. Coach Trem ran this camp. He was old track coach, cross-country coach. He loved sports, and a lot of the camp was built around sports. And every other week at the end of the two-week camp period, there would be a Camp Olympics and you could sign up for different parts of the Camp Olympics, just different events and different things. And so I can remember vividly, I was in the sixth grade, I signed up for the swimming medley relay as part of the Camp Olympics. That was one of the events that I was going to compete in. And I can remember standing there on the dock just vividly, and you know, when the person came, and now I have to dive in to go. The problem was, I wasn't a good swimmer. Now let me be more honest, I could not swim. I could not swim, but I didn't want any of the guys in my cabin to know that in the sixth grade, I could not swim. So, you know, I've been faking it this whole time, you know. I mean, I I just, I would never go out in the water beyond what my tiptoes would allow, or I would always have some reason, no, I don't want to go out there, my back's hurting, I got a headache. No, I'm going to go on the canoe. I like canoes better. They float. I didn't, and, but I still signed up for this event, and I can remember so vividly diving in and, well, that's pretty much it. That's all I could do. Lifeguard had to come in and get me. Thankfully, I was at camp for four weeks that summer, so the next two weeks I got personal lessons in swimming. At the end of the following two weeks, I didn't compete again in the swimming relay, but I did receive an award of Most Improved Swimmer, which is to say I was the only guy who couldn't swim, and now I could swim a little bit. But I've been in 5K races. I've been in 10K races. I've, I've run in a half marathon. It's nothing huge. It's a half marathon. But there are people there who've really prepared and people who haven't. There are people there who have the gear, They have the look, they have the number, they've got the stuff, but a mile in, a half mile in, they're walking already, they're struggling already, and many don't finish. But athletes train. Are you training yourself for godliness? Are you training for yourself for the things to come? So first implication is preparation. The second implication of a winning athlete is competition. Paul wrote a good bit about competition. He wasn't an athlete, but yet he was familiar with it. It seemed to be what most of us are. He was a fan and an educated fan. He understood what the competition was like, whether it was running or whether it was boxing or whatever it may be. He writes of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and he alludes to it here in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. And the idea of competition is found here. The reality is not everyone is going to win. Not everyone is going to win. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, "...do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize." so run that you may obtain it. Now, don't get lost in the running analogies here. He's not saying that of all Christians, only one wins, but those who finish all win, but not everyone's going to finish. And those who finish, not every one of them are going to finish well. Someone they finish will find they've been disqualified because they didn't keep the rules. They're disqualified But for those who want to finish well, there's got to be a sense of I'm running for something. There's a sense of competition here. I don't want to be defeated. I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want the enemy to take me out. I want to run all the way to the tape, to the very end of my life, whatever that life looks like. And at the end, I want God to say to me, you did it. I want to be able to say, I did it. I I finished well. I did what you asked me to do. I was faithful to the end. I want to run hard all the way to the tape because I'm running for an aim here. I'm running for a purpose. I'm not just wasting my life. I'm not just wasting my time. I'm, just wait- I'm not just waiting for something better to happen, something good to come my way. I'm not just floating downstream here. I'm running with an aim because I want my life to matter. And I want God to be pleased with it every single day. That's the competition of our Christian life. And, of course, that brings to number three, completion. Completion. One day this life is going to end. And the prize is not given for those who start well. The prize is given to those who finish well. That's why we're told again and again to persevere, to persevere to the end, to know that we're going to do this. We're not going to quit. We're not going to lose our faith. We're not going to stop being faithful. We're not going to lose our testimony, our witness. We're not going to bring shame to our king, but we're going to do what God wants us to do all the way to the end, preparation to do so, the competition that makes me want to do so, and carrying it all the way to the end, the completion that earns the reward. But to finish and finish well, there are some things an athlete has to do. And these are some things that other scriptures speak of, using the same language of competition and endurance and finishing. Hebrews 12.1 reminds us that to run well and to finish well, we've got to be unencumbered. Unencumbered. You can't be weighed down by so much stuff, and the stuff of Hebrews chapter one is primarily the sins of life that keep us from running well. How can I? How can I run well and still carry these sins with me? The answer is, I cannot. I'll go out, go out on a limb and say, "Every person that I've ever met. Who's walked away from the faith? And said, I'm not a Christian anymore. I don't believe that stuff anymore. Yeah, I used to, but I don't anymore. Every person who's so-called deconstructed, that I know, so this is, this is my witness to that reality, has done so because of sin. It wasn't intellectual reason first. It wasn't new discovery that brought them there. It was sin. And sin causes us to lose faith. Sin causes us to stop praying. Sin pulls us away from God's Word and God's people. Sin changes the trajectory of our lives. And that's why when we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we ought to be super aware of, super careful about things that we allow to creep in and take hold of us that become sins that beset us. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If you think that you can manage, ongoing, unconfessed, continually practice sin, and finish well, you're deceiving yourself. You're not an outlier. You're not unique. You'll not be able to do what other people have not been able to do. You too will fail. An athlete also has to be vigilant, always watchful. Galatians 5, 7 says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? I mean, you were running well. And in the context of Galatians, he's talking about faults, teaching which becomes false belief, which becomes a false way of living. You were were doing so good. You were so focused. You were running on the right track in the right way, and you weren't vigilant. You weren't discerning. You weren't careful about what you listened to. You weren't careful about who had influence in your life. You weren't careful about what you began to read and think about and believe, and all of a sudden, you end up over here, and that was a challenge to the Galatians. You had received the good news of Christ you receive the free grace that he offers. But somehow you have these false teachers that came in and said, it's grace plus these things, don't you know? Don't you Gentiles know that you've got to become fully Jewish too? You've got to be circumcised too? We don't add anything to that. Be so careful. Be vigilant. Someone who runs has to decide, God, help me to be clear-headed, diligently vigilant, mindful of everything that affects me. As I read already in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, an athlete also has to be motivated. Motivated. Run so that you win the prize. This seems kind of self-obvious to me, but do you have some aim in mind? Is there something you're working towards? I'm not talking about just personally or professionally. I'm talking about spiritually, eternally. Are you living for something? And if if you're living for this, if you would say, my aim, like yours is to hear the well-done, good and faithful servant of the Lord. And how does that affect what you do every single day? Because that's not something you just put off one day to another day. You know, imagine if you were signing up today. You said, you know what, you motivated me, this little sermon thing you've done on competing and athletes and training, I'm going to sign up for a marathon. Now, I'm going to be smart about it. I'm going to give myself, I don't know, nine, ten months to get ready. Because I know I'm not ready today. I couldn't do it today. But I think with nine or ten months of change of self-discipline and eating habits, you know, exercise, getting together with a group of other people, maybe a coach or somebody that could help me, I think I could get there. And I would say, you can. You could do it. You could get there. But you wake up tomorrow and you say, man, it's, it's kind of hot. It's drizzly. I'll wait. I'll wait a couple of days. And you say, you know what, September is just so busy for me, and we're back to school and the kids all this stuff. I think I'll get started when it gets a little bit cooler. I'll maybe wait till October. You see where I'm going with this. And this is our mindset. We'll put it off, we put it off. We do that spiritually all the time. At what point will you say, I'm I'm aiming for something here? I want to run and run well, and I want to finish well, and I want the reward. I'm motivated to hear God say, Well done. That starts today. So it takes number four, that's an athlete has to be disciplined disciplined. Any of you who truly are athletes, who've taken on serious athletic endeavor knows that means you have to say no to certain things that everyone else is saying yes to, like dessert or extra sleep or wasted time. And you have to say yes to things that no one else wants, like getting up early or working harder or or managing pain or discomfort. But it's that self-discipline and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They're not mastered by externals. The healthy Christian decides what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it. And the healthy Christian doesn't let other people determine how they're going to act and doesn't let circumstances or situations determine how they're going to respond. But they set the course that God gives them and they run it with diligence and they trust in the grace of God to get them through. Finally, I guess related to motivation and vigilance is this purposefulness to everything that we do, to everything that we do. Time is the stuff that life is made out of, and so don't waste the time that God's given you and opportunities. Paul said, I don't run aimlessly. I'm not wasting my time, my life here. It's too valuable. It's too precious. He says, I don't box as one beating the air. I'm not competing against nothing. I discipline my body and I keep it under control. There's something about this culture that we live in that prizes autonomy and the pursuit of pleasure as the highest goods. And it's almost as if, if you'll listen for it, you'll hear the subtle and sometimes not so subtle message do what you want, follow your heart. Go with what you feel. Don't deny yourself anything. But that only leads to self-destruction. That only leads ultimately to despair. Paul says, I have to keep myself under control. A Christian has to say, no, I will say no to things that I want. I will deny desires of my heart that aren't good or godly, that don't match what God wants from me. I was not created to say yes to every whim to every lust. That self-indulgent life only kills me. But God has created us for something better, and He's recreated us and put His Spirit in us so that we could be disciplined and purposeful. He says, don't run aimlessly. Are you running aimlessly today, or do you have some purpose in mind? And overarching all of this is what Paul told Timothy, reminding us that an athlete's greatest threat is disqualification. I think about those nubs of statues that we saw on Olympus and the inscriptions below of those who failed. And I thought about how true it is that we remember failures more than successes. People that we thought would win but didn't. People who disappointed us when we found out something about them that disqualified them. You can have every good intention... You can have all the support in the world, but if you don't finish well, if you disqualify yourself, and how would you do that? How would you do that? Remember the words that he says? An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. What's he talking about? He's not talking about simply the rules of competition. He's talking about the rules of Christ. Listen, you have to understand, Timothy or anyone listening, if you're not faithful to Jesus... If you don't do what He says, if you, like a soldier, don't honor the wishes of the one who commands you, if you're not faithful to what He requires and teaches, then it really doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how much applause you get. It doesn't matter how good people think you are. It doesn't matter how good you feel about yourself. Have I done what God wants me to do? Am I right with Him? We use all these analogies, but I hope you understand without any sense of familiarity or just... Routineness to this. Am I walking with him faithfully? Am I keeping it between the lines that he has prescribed? And you may not be, and no one knows, but him. And on that day when you finish, if you're in Christ, I'm not saying it's about your salvation, but it will surely be about your reward. And that which you have not considered valuable today, you will consider infinitely valuable on that day. I mean, in that moment where the concept of eternity becomes reality and you realize how short life is and how long you have with the king, those things that were so valuable become nothing to us. In that moment of disqualification, where is the reward? You'll wish you would live differently. The good news is that God's grace allows us to get back on path, back on course. The good news is you're likely not disqualified permanently. But genuine repentance, which is to get back where you should be, not to feel sorry that you've messed up, not to hate the consequences that have come your way because you have failed badly and gone way off the path that God has for you, but no, the desire to say, God, restore me, put me back where I ought to be, whatever that takes, whatever that looks like. That confession leads to genuine repentance is a path to restoration and still finishing well. And listen, I'm not saying these things today for that sensitive heart that might be saying, you know, I already feel guilty enough for the things I've done, the ways I've messed up, the wrong paths I've taken. I'm saying, by God's grace, you cannot undo what has been done, but you can choose and be able to successfully do differently from this day forward. You still can finish well. If you're not finished yet, you still can finish well. The greatest threat is disqualification, but your best defense is integrity. It's integrity. This little statement that Paul makes at the end of 1 Corinthians 9, 27. So he's telling telling the Corinthians, you know, run in a way to win the prize. Not everybody does. Exert self-control or self-discipline in all things to receive an imperishable reward. Don't run aimlessly. Discipline yourself, and then he says, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. I can say the right things. I can tell other people the right things. I can teach the right things. I can command the right things. But if I myself am not right, I lose the prize. That's integrity. What will guard you? What will guard you the best in life? having integrity, not waiting for someone to call you out and say, hey, that's wrong. Hey, you cheated. Hey, that's outside the lines. Hey, we don't go for that stuff around here. But to guard my own self and my own walk, because I know that I'm living my life under the vigilant eyes of the king, always. And I care about his opinion of my life. I care about what he thinks. I care about what is right and good in His sight, whether it's known to you or not known to you. And that integrity is what, is what guards us. What's the ultimate aim of this? Well, you probably know. It's one of the most familiar set of verses in all of Paul's communications with Timothy. We'll spend a little bit more time on it in a few weeks, but for now, read with me 2 Timothy 4, 7-8. through 8. Paul's testimony was this. I I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, you want something on your tombstone with weight for your family's sake, for future generations' sake? Let that be true of you. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, to all who have loved him enough to be faithful to him, to all who have loved him enough to live their lives to honor him, to all who have loved him enough to run this race of life publicly and privately within the boundaries that he gives us to live. He says, I've done this. I did it. I I fought the good fight. Sometimes that fight is against me, myself, my own desires and wants. Sometimes that fight is against the pressures on me or the temptations that come my way. But I fought it in such a way that I could finish. And I never left, never let go of, never departed from my faith all the way to the end. And now there is a crown. There is a reward. I hope that's your aim. That's the challenge of a good athlete, and I want to start this right, not with self-effort, but through the grace of God in Christ. God, make me into the person you want me to be. Set me free of the person I used to be. Forgive me of my past and rewrite my future. Put your spirit in me to give me, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, both the will and the ability to do what pleases you in Philippians chapter 2. Do these things for me. Father, surround me with people who will help me run well and finish well. May my great desire to be your pleasure, your good name, your honor in all things, whether those things are known or not known, may I live to please you. And may I commit myself to finishing well. And whatever it takes to do that, whatever training is required of me, to know how to handle your word better, to know how to pray better, To know how to encourage one another and receive encouragement, whatever it takes, may I be faithful and diligent. May I live life like no one else is living so that I may receive a reward like so many others will never receive. May I be willing to be set apart. I want to share with you in in closing a prayer. And this is a prayer that ministered to me, was very meaningful to me. I have this book I keep on my desk. Now there are piles of books on my desk. I have a special section of books. There's a subsection. A books that I hit with some regularity. And this book is called Everyday Prayers. And the author is Scotty Smith. And I want to share this one as a prayer because it speaks for me and I hope it will speak for you. Would you pray with me? Jude, verses 24 and 25. To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Heavenly Father, the older I get, the more I care about finishing this life well. I wish less temptation came with more years. I wish diminishment of physical strength brought an automatic increase in spiritual strength but that's not the way it works. I wish wisdom always came with years, but there are a lot of old fools running around. I need Jesus' mercy and grace today just as much as the first day you placed me safely in Christ. Until the day you glorify me, I will need all the riches of the gospel. Thus I abandon myself to the promises which overflow in these words from Jude. They are a balm to my being and a ballast for my journey home. I praise you, Father, that the most important grasp in the gospel is yours, not mine. You will keep me from ultimately falling away from you. And when I do falter and fail, you will love and restore me. I am forever guilt-free because of your once and for all sacrifice for me. O blessed and wonderful cross! As hard as it is to imagine, especially in my times of weakness, one day you will present me before your glorious presence without fault and with great joy. How many times do I have to say that for my heart to really believe it? Without fault and great joy. Without fault and with great joy. Without fault and with great joy. I praise you for your everlasting kindness and matchless strength. Indeed, may my heart passionately proclaim with myriads of angels and countless believers to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority in this life and in the life to come. Jesus, trusting the life you lived for me as the second Adam, the life you gave for me as the Lamb of God, and the life you now live through me as my hope of glory, I will finish well, without faults and with great joy, without fault and with great joy, without fault and with great joy. So very amen, I pray, in your glorious and grace-filled name. Amen.